0: Days before her wedding, a grad student is seen entering a lab on the Yale campus. But get this, she never leaves. So what really happened the day Annie Leigh disappeared? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping the families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We're crossing the line. I'm M. William Phelps, and joining me is, of course, my producer extraordinaire, Christina Everett. Hello, Everett. How are you?
1: Hey, I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm okay. What have you been up to since the last time we chatted, Everett?
1: I have been watching a lot of stuff. Thankfully, with fall here, there's a lot of new stuff coming, so I've been watching a lot of really good TV.
0: What did you watch over the weekend?
1: So there are two things that I saw. One is a fiction a scripted one is a series. Season three of You came back on Netflix this weekend. Guilty pleasure show, you know, very twisty and fun and murderous. So the other thing that I watched was this true crime documentary, What Happened? Brittany Murphy on HBO Max. It's a two-part series, and I have very torn feelings about it, you know. Why? Bottom line— the series doesn't answer their own question. We don't really know what happened to Brittany Murphy. They take two very different takes on her story. It's like half of a respectful retrospective of her career. And then there was like this tabloidy take on her personal life. They interviewed a lot of gossip reporters and columnists and paparazzi. And so that was frustrating because... I didn't really like hearing their opinions on her. But at the same time, her reputation was marred by the tabloids. And so they are the voice to represent where her life was going, especially towards the end of her life with her husband, who was a creepy con artist.
0: A loser. Scumbag.
1: I will say the second part of the documentary really gets into his life and the secrets that he kept and... He
0: controlled her, right? He
1: He was of Svengali. He was a con artist. He... Said he was a British film producer, and he claimed that he had cancer but was getting experimental shark treatments or something, and he owned all these famous original paintings. He was making all these grandiose claims, but he latched on to Brittany Murphy and her money, and oddly enough, he died only a few months later of the same exact reason, so it's still a mystery.
0: Wasn't there any other true crime documentaries that you watched last week, Everett?
1: True crime documentaries. No, but that Succession debuted. came back, and that was really exciting.
0: So you didn't watch Mine, Notorious, the Happy Face Killer.
1: Oh, um,
0: why wouldn't you watch that? I'm curious. No,
1: yes, of course, of course. That was the first one I watched. I, I was just thinking, you know,
0: that's a lie. You, tell me, you know, tell me what it was about then.
1: The, the Happy Face Killer.
0: But but how? And what? How what was notorious the angle?
1: he was at his crimes.
0: Absolutely not. And you didn't watch it. Well, when you do get a chance, Everett, it's on oxygen. You can get it on demand. And it's it's really more about the emotional toll that it all took on me. So I thought you'd be interested in that. But apparently you're not.
1: I thought so. I am already enough of an emotional toll on you. So
0: that is true. <laughs> that is no, I'll very watch it. true. I watch
1: it. I promise. I promise.
0: I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Gabby Petito case and that they announced that she was strangled. Which is not a big surprise, I think, to many people, me in particular, that's a very personal control power thing, strangulation. So, And we're assuming that he did it, but we don't know yet. We don't know what happened. She was dead for what, three, three weeks? weeks. Yeah, yeah. So that alone will have a toll on any evidence, forensic evidence, et cetera.
1: Did you see the latest on the Murdoch case?
0: Yeah, the uh, he was arrested finally for the embezzlement of the $4.2 million.
1: For those of you who don't know, Alex Murdaugh is a very successful South Carolina lawyer whose wife and son were shot dead. And only a few weeks later, he was shot by someone who turned out to be set up by Alex himself. It's a really messy case.
0: It's very dirty. He's into so much shit, this guy. I mean...
1: That's what happens when you have... Too much money, right? Money and power.
0: Don't ask me. What are you asking me?
1: To- <laughs> I wouldn't know either, but that's right. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I don't know if that's true, though. I know people with money and they're not into murdering people and hiring people to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so they're pretty content with their money. and I- living on the shoreline.
1: But also like feel entitled and privileged yes. that they can yes. do it. That's right? It. They can do it and get away with it.
0: Part of it's coveting, right? It's like, my neighbor's rich, I want to be him, and you embezzle from him. That is entitlement. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's disgusting, and he's disgusting, and he's going to jail for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this case goes next, because there are so many different layers.
0: But, you know, let's talk about this week. This week, we have this interesting guest. We have this really interesting case, and we have insight into it that nobody's heard. It's a high-profile case, which is something I generally don't mess around with when I look into cases.
1: Why is that? Well,
0: when I'm writing books, I don't want to get into some sort of dash to the finish line first on a case like that. And there's probably two true crime authors or three working on a high-profile case at the same time. So I'm out. The other part of it is the case is going to be overcovered, So it's going to hurt sources. So sources are going to be, they're not going to want to talk to you. Because a lot they've of talked
1: are, to too many people.
0: And and they've probably gotten burned by a few. So they're going to have a sour taste in their mouth, et cetera. And it's just, its just you know, every way I look at it, when I go into a case, I need to offer something to it. If I can't offer something to it, then why am I there, you know? Right. But this one here was in my backyard. I mean, Annie Lay case is in Yale. I'm, you know, 30 minutes from Yale. I know some of the people involved in the investigation. So, Everett, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the Annie Lay case, which we're getting into today.
1: This case was actually high profile on the East Coast and had some nationwide coverage when it happened in 2009. But it wasn't one that has gotten a huge amount of coverage within the true crime space. So let's break down some of the details. Annie Lay was a 24-year-old third-year grad student who attended Yale University. She was studying for her PhD in pharmacology, which meant that she was doing research at a lab on campus on almost a daily basis. So we're looking at Tuesday, September 8th, 2009. And one of Yale's 70 CCTV cameras had captured Annie walking into the lab, but not one camera had actually caught her leaving. And authorities watched and rewatched the tapes to be sure. And she never exited the building. And at that point, Tuesday became Wednesday. Wednesday became Thursday. And this wasn't just any week for Annie. Sunday, just five days after she disappeared, Annie was supposed to get married.
0: I remember this distinctively. The media was hitting the runaway bride angle very hard. They kept bringing up Jennifer Wilbanks, the original runaway bride from Georgia who faked being kidnapped in 2005 so she could get out of her own wedding.
1: That was a big deal.
0: That was a huge deal, huge deal. But this was like four years before Annie disappeared. Hmm. So it came back. I remember that. There was a big swell, you know, had Annie run away. And I think the media was hoping (laughs) that she did. You know, it would have been a bigger story if she had done that. Not only that, but she would have been alive.
1: And of course, the first immediate suspect is her fiance.
0: You know, but if you quickly look at him, you know, he's a grad student from Columbia. Right. Every indication is they're very much in love. They have this big, huge wedding plan. Both the families are close. There's just no way that it's him.
1: Right. But that's the first thing you look at, right? It's usually the significant other.
0: I mean, yeah, of course you have to question him. But I don't believe he was a viable suspect right away. I I, I mean, there was nothing to suspect right away. She had disappeared. So there was really nothing to suspect because they couldn't find her.
1: Right. Prior to her disappearance, Annie had actually been working in the lab doing research on animals. And on the morning of September 8th, she got a text to discuss the cleanliness of her mice cages. So she first went to her office on the Yale campus and left behind her purse, which had her cell phone, ID, money, credit cards and whatnot, and walked over to the lab building a few blocks away. Now, because of the sensitive nature of the work, much of it included experiments on animals, there were no cameras inside the lab building where she worked. The only access was allowed through a special electronic ID card.
0: Very secure building, very regulated. I mean, you're dealing with animals. And listening, I mean, if I don't know anything about this case at all, I'm going to go right toward animal activists, you know. Really? Well, yeah, I mean, because there were some problems at that lab at one time, as there are with any lab that experiments on animals.
1: That's a pretty extreme measure to take if you disagree with. Why? To kidnap a person because you don't like what they're doing in a science lab? Yeah. That's straight out of a movie.
0: I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. True. We're dealing with stuff that doesn't seem real.
1: Well, In reality, the cameras outside of the lab building and the card log had actually showed that Annie had entered the building at 10.09 a.m. And she entered her lab room at 10.11 a.m. She never left the building.
0: So let's talk about the person who sent Annie the texts. I mean, that would be an important witness to talk to.
1: Right. Well, it turns out it was a 24 year old lab technician named Raymond Clark who had grown up nearby. He had been working at Yale since 2004. And his job there was to take care of the animals and make sure that all the appropriate documents were filed and ethical standards were followed. So on the day in question, Raymond had entered the room where Annie's mice were kept at around 10.40 a.m. And he was in the room for about 46 minutes. And then between then and 3.45, he went in between that lab room and another room 55 times. Obviously far more than usual. Uh, you think? Even more suspect, he changed his clothes at least three times.
0: You know, that there's not usually much interaction between technicians and scientists. But the reality is it would not at all be strange for somebody in Clark's position to directly call or send email to students about their lab work. Mm. So Clark and Annie routinely exchanged texts, emails, etc. Got it. So we shouldn't be just pointing a finger at him right away because right. this was not, that was the norm. Yeah. But, this is more interesting. So a fire alarm triggered by steam used to sterilize lab equipment goes off at one fifty-five p.m., but security footage shows that everyone in the building exits except for... Annie Lay. You got it.
1: And what's crazy is this is Yale. The building that she was in was only two years old, and they had high-security key cards that had memory to track your every move.
0: You know, you have to be careful here because... There might be a blank space, a dead area.
1: Like a blind spot.
0: Yeah, a blind spot where she could have left out a back door and boom, no one saw her. It was dark. The light was out there. There could be lots of possibilities. Sure,
1: but with 70 cameras to work with, that's pretty hard.
0: Very hard, but it's not impossible. So, you you know, you have to look at the impossible. But on the other hand, no one's seen her.
1: Correct, right. Right, so... When investigators spoke with Raymond Clark on September 10th, which were now two days later after Annie disappeared, Clark said that he had been at work since 7 a.m. that day and had seen Annie around 1030 a.m. He also said that he saw Annie leave her lab room around 1245 with a notebook and two bags of mouse food.
0: But she never came home.
1: Right. So Annie's roommate reported her missing later that night when she didn't return home and hadn't checked in. However, Yale didn't actually investigate her absence until the following morning, which brings us to Friday.
0: You know, under ideal circumstances, investigating a missing person as soon as you can is very important.
1: First 48 hours.
0: Yeah. But again, going back to what I said earlier, uh, investigating an adult missing person is a different thing, you know, because most adults who go missing want to be missing. All right. They, they, They take off, whatever.
1: And this is why they were thinking about the runaway bride idea. Yeah,
0: I mean, maybe she got cold feet. I mean, it's 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 possible she got cold feet. Maybe she's not a runaway bride, per se, like Jennifer Wilbanks, but maybe she got cold feet and she's maybe hiding she's just out.
1: Maybe she's walking really fast.
0: Yeah, or she's in a hotel room somewhere and she's crying and she's upset and, you know, I don't want to talk to nobody. Uh, I don't want to get married. I'm only doing this because my parents want me. Who knows? Right. Who knows what's going on in people's heads these days? So you have to look at all possibilities. And the fact that Yale didn't jump right on it, I mean, I'm not mad at them for that.
1: But not long after she went missing, the investigators actually did start focusing on the lab, which makes sense because that was the last place where Annie was seen alive.
0: And not seen.
1: Yeah, true.
0: Annie's family and friends report that she was really excited for her wedding. Mm -hmm. And also that her fiance definitely is not a suspect.
1: So by September 11th, over 100 law enforcement officials, that included city and state police, Yale security, and even the FBI were working on the case. You know, this is a missing Yale student. So imagine the bad press they could face. You know, everyone's terrified of what could happen.
0: God forbid that Yale would get bad press.
1: So Yale announced a $10,000 reward for information that could lead to Annie's whereabouts. Her face was seen on electronic billboards along the major highway around the Yale campus.
0: So Saturday, September 12th is where things take a turn. Investigators find a bloody sock and rubber glove hidden above a hallway ceiling panel. That's pretty big. Huh. Yeah. And now we've got blood on the scene. The sock is later found to have both Annie's DNA on it along with one other unknown person. There we go. So now we have blood present with Annie Lay, and this immediately is not looking good anymore. She's no runaway bride. So this brings us to our guest today. You have to picture this. The Connecticut State Police, they literally set up shop at that lab. They had an incredible presence to begin with, manpower, women power. But they also have this awesome, like, Greyhound bus-size mobile crime scene unit that they can do just about anything in. Wow. When you see that thing parked somewhere, you know there's not good times ahead.
1: So that sounds like a really good place for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll hear from one of the experts who worked the case. Our guest today, Peter Valentin, is a professor at the University of New Haven. He worked over 500 major crime scenes during his time with the Connecticut State Police Crime Squad and was the crime scene investigator on the Annie Lay case.
0: Peter's been a good friend for a long time. So welcome to the show, Peter. Hi, everybody. Now, your previous work as an investigator was reconstructing crime scenes. How accurate would you say the depictions of crime scene investigations are on television? Oh, goodness.
2: They they sure do make what I did a whole lot more interesting than it was in real life. But at the same time, some of the things you see in real casework is just so out there and so odd that you could never turn that into a script because nobody believe what you what you did or what you saw or what the truth turned out to be.
1: Well, speaking of so one of your most high profile crimes that you worked was the 2009 killing of Annie Lay. Can you walk us through the investigation? What did you notice when you first got to the scene and what were the things that you did as a detective?
2: So, frankly, the beginning of the scene was somewhat anticlimactic because when we first got there, she was still a missing person. And so we were still grappling with, you know, what's really a fundamental question when you do crime scene work is, you know, has a crime even been committed? And At the time, there was a runaway bride, and I think that factored into a lot of people's initial assessment of what happened with Annie Lay. And so when we went there, there were people who certainly thought it could go either way, that this wasn't necessarily criminal, that she might just be a missing person or somebody who's not missing but is choosing not to be found.
0: But obviously all the security cameras didn't show her leaving the building. So are you then wondering if she'd been taken out some other way? Right.
2: I was... In one sense, spectacularly
0: wrong in this case, because
2: I remember thinking, and I said it out loud, that I was certain that she had been dismembered and taken out of the scene. Because this facility had all the equipment necessary for you to do all of that in a very, you know, frankly, a surgical way and for you to take her remains out in these very thick plastic
0: containers Peter, you've got to share that story you told me a while back about one of your guys going into the bathroom. Yeah, so you know,
2: uh, one of the somebody goes into the men's room, right? Does it doesn't even get more cliche than this? And and they come out and they say, you know, there's an odor in the men's room. And, and this was Saturday night, she was ultimately discovered on Sunday. And I remember all of us thinking, like, well, you've been feeding us so well, and you know, <laughs> next time, you know, more salad, less pizza. Like we, you know. <laughs> We just yeah. kind of brushed it off because of where it was coming from. And, and frankly, the odor was nondescript. So, you know, the odor of decomposition, uh, it, it certainly th- at that stage, it kind of was close to the odor that you might find in a men's room.
1: Oh, right. interesting.
2: But it was late enough on Saturday night. What we did was we, we closed the door and we sealed it shut with evidence tape. And we told people, you know, nobody goes into this room. We literally sealed it with evidence tape. And we came back a few hours later, we broke the seal with a knife. And when we opened up the door, the odor was more pronounced than it was before. And now it had taken an obvious turn and it was no longer this indiscriminate bad smell. It was clearly decomposition. I smelled the sink drains. I smelled the toilet. I smelled the vents and there was no odor coming into the space. So whatever it was, was there. Right. And then when we went back Sunday morning, it was even more pronounced. And, it, and we actually were able to sort of pinpoint where it was coming from. And it was coming from one of the stalls, but it wasn't coming from the toilet.
1: Fast forward and this other lab tech, Raymond Clark, was charged with Annie's murder. When did you start to suspect that he was responsible?
2: I would say... You know, very non-scientifically, that if you just watched his behavior while everybody was outside during the when the uh, alarm went off, there was clearly something bothering him. Everybody else was enjoying the day and sitting outside, and he was pacing around frantically as if something was wrong. Jeez. The conclusion was inescapable that he has something to do with this. Now, obviously, that's not proof of anything, but it certainly gave you a reason to go back in the lab and be that much more diligent with what you're searching for. So you guys go
0: back into the lab. Tell me what you found.
2: So there was a bunch of DNA, and I'll just say it wasn't it wasn't blood and it wasn't uh, touch DNA, on the wall where we believe that she was attacked. And I say we believe because there, there really wasn't an abundance of physical evidence to make it clear to us where she was attacked. Hmm. But there were some blood stains, there was some what we thought was seminal fluid um, in the vicinity that, that certainly gave rise to the suggestion that this is where the event occurred. And more importantly, this is the place where her animals are kept. And if Mm -hmm. you know a little bit of the backstory, you know that, you know, he sent her an email and said, I need to talk to you about your animals. And so presumably this meeting occurred in that room.
0: So first of all, get us into the wall, if you will, and how you discover her body. So, if any of you have been in a
2: bathroom, a public bathroom that has tile, you know, up the wall, you'll know that there are, there's often these access panels that you would be able to open if you needed to, act, you know, get to a shutoff valve. Where otherwise in the home, the shutoff valve would be right there, available for you. To right do under that. the so, sink, yeah. Exactly. So, in a, you know, in a public bathroom, you can't have those exposed, so they're hidden behind the wall, and there's a door that you can open to turn those things on and off, and so. But when I went to smell the area around this access panel, because there's clearly that's a place where air can come in and exit the space. Mm -hmm. I smelled oranges. Which really confused me. And it turns out there was a reason for that. But we ended up opening up this access panel anyway. And when we did, we saw bloodstains on the pipe. And so this hole was about 11 and a half inches square. Really small i couldn 't even put my head into the, the the opening to look, so we had to use a, a borescope to kind of snake around and light the space up and look in the hole and I saw her foot hmm. and even Jesus. at that point, I still think that she 's not intact, that she this has to be a body part, and so quite clearly, this is such a, an important concentrated area of physical evidence that we have to be very deliberate in how we do this. So what we did was we went around to the other side of the wall and we essentially dismantled the entire wall to create this cross section. So the analogy I think would work is if any of you had an ant farm when you were kids, Hmm. Uh, what we did was we kind of cut away so that you could see everything like like an an archaeologist
0: almost. Yeah, cut across.
2: And then we carefully removed the physical evidence from that space. And at the bottom of all of that, under Annie Lay, who, who was intact, mm-hmm. there was a green pen. And what we had documented during the earlier part of the investigation was that Ray Clark had, up until that afternoon, signed on his worksheets in green pen. Nobody mm. else did.
1: Always green pen.
2: It was always green pen, and in the afternoon, mm-hmm. on that Wednesday when she went missing, he switched from green to blue. Ooh. Interestingly, when we first were documenting these these worksheets, they were of no significance to, the, to us. It was just, we, we documented it because they were there. And it was only late days later that we realized, like, oh my goodness, this is a timestamp. Such a subtle clue. And again, we don't, we don't see any significance to this until we see the green pen. And then we're like, oh -hmm. my goodness. You know, like the big reveal.
1: Why would the pen be there?
2: All right, so if anybody's ever worn a lab coat, um, you know what happens when you bend over with a lab coat and you have pens in your pocket, your pens fall out. So what about his personal items?
0: Did you find anything when you searched his stuff? Now this is days earlier, right? So we searched the
2: locker room and we go through his things and he's got a backpack. And in his backpack, there's a, a, a piece of monofilament line, right? Fishing line and a hook at the end of it. There are no lures. There's no tackle box. There's no fishing equipment. It's just a, a hook and a line. And you're like, what is that there for? Oh, my God. And then when we find the pen.
1: Oh, my God. We realize you realize what me? the
2: hook is for because he must have been <laughs> trying to fish the, hook, the, the pen out of the hole after he realized
0: he dropped it in there. So that sounds like a good place to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Even more interesting is there's a pipe sticking up, Peter, and you told me there's got to be a handprint on that pipe to use for leverage to push her in there. Right, so so you know, even then, even though this
2: is you know over ten years ago now, you know the the idea of, of uh, epithelial cells, right, touch DNA transferring to things is something we're aware of. And so while you swab the blood stain because I want to know whose blood it is, I also swab around that because it seems pretty clear to me that you might be touching the pipe as you're putting your hand in in the access panel, right? And so that swab, um, obviously goes right to our lab immediately. And I don't realize this right away, but the lab shuts down right after that swab goes to the lab within about a day or so. And it turns out that that swab, there's a CODIS hit, which ordinarily would be a great thing, right? So the DNA database of convicted felons and you know yep. other mm-hmm. people, there's a hit on that database. Where you're like, great, who is it? It's somebody who died a few years oh before this crime occurred.
1: But had committed a crime to be in CODIS.
0: Exactly. So. And now you've got a problem, what? legally speaking, <laughs> when you go to court, because you've got a dead guy now, his DNA, at the crime scene of a woman who's been murdered after he's been dead.
1: So do you suspect then that that is another victim or that is... A, I don't even know because he's dead at that
2: point, right? So right, so it's even a little more interesting because when you when you swab a surface, you know, so let's say you swabbed my my mug here,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, any any competent analyst is going to know about how much DNA to get from that contact, right? It's my mug, you know, and, and there's a range of, of of DNA that you would expect to find. What was found on that pipe? was a few thousand times more DNA than you would normally find from somebody touching an object.
0: Damn. And so they immediately thought that there's contamination in the lab. Damn, right, right. That's why they shut the lab down. Right, they
2: did a complete audit of every case
0: that was out
2: on a bench because they're like, somebody transferred DNA to the Annie evidence because there's simply no way that this much DNA gets on an object. It gets even crazier. As part of this background investigation to try to figure out what's happening, it turns out that the dead guy and Ray Clark worked out at the same gym. Stop it.
1: (laughs) Wait, how? He didn't work at the lab, did he?
2: Well, he kind of did.
1: Was he like a lab tech or like, what do you mean?
2: So when the building was being constructed his job was to make the space that Annie Lay was eventually found in.
1: That's so weird. That is like some like a twist out of CSI. Like that you can't make that up.
2: You can't put this in a movie because nobody's going to buy it.
1: But did well, they you know, know each other? Like they worked out at the same gym but not as buddies. No. Just by no. sheer coincidence in the location.
2: Sheer coincidence.
1: One thing that's really frustrating is the why. Did you ever figure out the motive for why Annie Lay was killed?
2: So I have my ideas about what it was, but I I will tell you what it wasn't. In the very beginning, I remember a news conference where it it was stated that this was a, a case of workplace violence. And to me, that was an oversimplification of what was clearly a much more complex dynamic between Ray Clark and Annie Lay, obsession. Yeah. So yes, did it? Yeah, did it happen at work? Yes, it did. But when you think workplace violence, you think of disgruntled former employee. Right. You think of you, you think of that kind of of situation, and this wasn't that at all.
1: Especially if there was seminal fluid on the wall.
2: No, right. And so he he had the ability to lure her back because of their working relationship. Right. But it's really myopic to say, well, that classifies this as workplace violence. It wasn't that at all.
0: Great point. And and also the high profileness of it. There's a lot of pressure on you guys,
2: right? You guys are sleeping in your car. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, uh I used to have a change of clothes and toiletries in my car for the off chance that we would have a very prolonged scene. And there were days I didn't go home uh, from that case. Because yeah, the the media attention, the scrutiny in this case was just tremendous. And I remember vividly, one day I had a moment and I I put on a, a plain jacket so nobody could see my patches and I walked outside. And In the area around the lab, I saw nobody, so I thought it was just sort of quiet. And then I went a little further, and then I saw the rope lines, and I saw the TV crews. They were like director's chairs and anchors for TV shows broadcasting from outside the facility. And that's when I realized how this
0: had become a worldwide...
1: It was much more than just a local case.
0: Oh, my goodness. Does something like that, Peter, help or hurt an investigation when there's so much of a microscope on it? Because... There's even one time I remember you telling me a while back that literally there's someone there that take the forensic science kits directly to the lab. I mean, when does that happen?
2: And it never happens. And, you know, that's one of the parts of this that really will bother you, because why do some cases get this level of attention? Right. And why do some cases not even make it into the media? Right. And you see some very uncomfortable demographic issues, timing issues. Sure. You know, but even for the same demographic, you have a busy news day and that that crime goes essentially unrecognized or unnoted. You get a quiet news day or you have a case that fits a particular narrative and all of a sudden it gets elevated.
1: For those interested in following in your career path and what you've done so far, what are the most important skills that you would say are necessary for forensic investigation? And what is the most important thing that you'd want your students to walk away with?
2: I think that there's two things. I mean, one, being deliberative like a scientist is not always a good idea. Because Mm. if if I think like a scientist when I should be thinking like a detective, I'm late. Mm. I'm I'm thinking when I should be doing Mm -hmm. And if I'm thinking like a detective, when I should be thinking like a scientist, I'm too early. I have this like reaction to the evidence as opposed to a real deliberation about what the evidence could mean. And so that was my problem when I was a detective was like, I almost didn't know who to be. Am I a detective right now? Or am I a scientist right now? (laughs) Wow. And nobody ever prepared me for that because I Mm -hmm. always thought those two things belonged together. And in my own head, they did. They still do. I think the public does too. Sure. And and it w- it's what makes for sexy TV, right? Yes. You know, the person who picks up the evidence at the uh, at the scene is the person interviewing the suspect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and in reality, you know, there are times where I had the most information so I should be part of the interview, but a lot of times you want to separate me from from that subjective information. But to get to your question, like what what do people need? It's not about your ego. In a group of people like a team of investigators, you don't have to be the person who gets it right. You want to be part of the team, the, the, you know, the unit that gets it right, the department that gets it right. But that's a hard thing for people to, to buy into because the nature of the work is so competitive. Mm. You, know, you have to compete from when you get hired in a police department to become a detective right? And so how do you become a detective? You've got to be a really aggressive police officer. And you've got to follow things to the, to the end. And so, you know, that's how you distinguish yourself to become a detective. And so that dynamic is always there. I wish somebody had told me because it, it was right. a really hard <laughs> lesson to learn. And before you go and think that, well, the way to solve the problem is to let forensic scientists do the work, that's not a solution either, because I'll tell you that nobody taught me how to investigate when I went to school for forensic science. So why are you looking for the evidence? What element of the crime are you trying to establish? How thoroughly have you considered whether or not what it is that you're looking at might not
0: be a crime at all? And always keep in mind that sometimes it just takes a guy going to take a shit. And (laughs) next thing you know, a crime is solved, right? I mean, mean, there you go. And you find a body. (laughs) I, I
1: mean, that's... <laughs> that's the moral of the story. Great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Always be thinking, even when you're going, right? Oh, yeah. Peter's so knowledgeable about this, isn't he, Everett? I mean, uh, he the he guy was is so great. so great. That was so yeah. interesting. I love his investigation methods, the way his mind thinks.
1: Well, it's cool to also go behind the scenes, right? To be able yeah. to see what it was like to actually be... On the ground.
0: He found her body.
1: Right. And to hear the step-by-step investigation, it's pretty cool.
0: I love the little detail about...
1: The fishing hook?
0: Well, that plus the handprint on top of the pipe. Right. When I think about a guy like Raymond Clark, you know, there's guys like him around. And if you think that guy in your office is touched a little bit, there's something in his eyes keep an eye on the guy, you know, believe your instincts. We have intuition for a reason. We have gut feelings for a reason. Listen to your gut feelings, because Clark certainly gave off plenty of that stuff. When they start to talk to his his girlfriend and people who know him, they were all like, okay, we get it, hmm.
1: you know. As a woman, it's just, that's the workspace. We already have enough to deal with. So to have the additional fear that co-worker could do something this malicious, right. this sadistic, is right. terrifying. I'm glad we discussed this case. You know, it was something that I wasn't quite familiar with but did sound a little familiar once we got into it. Right. But right. I think it's something that was interesting to touch on again. So I'm glad we did that.
0: I think we brought a new part of this to it. Absolutely. As well, you know. Yeah. Well, all right. So that's all for today. We'll see you here next week.